Good evening, gang. How's everybody? You know, we started out with 500 plus, and we're now down to the faithful few. And uh, there's probably a lesson for us uh, about what eternity is going to be like, okay? Because we're going to end up with a faithful few. And so congratulations, y'all are part of the faithful few. And so I'm excited to have you. Even the guy sitting in the way back row who could come up here and sit, but uh, I know that would be uncomfortable, so we don't want anybody to be uncomfortable. Hey, we're going to start off with something fun tonight because we've got uh, Aaron Tui He's going to talk a little bit about co- community. And, you know, I never got that kind of uh, welcome from these ladies sitting down here. Um, doesn't hurt my feelings too much. Um, but Aaron's going to talk a little bit about why we believe in community And, you know, um, if you think about it, the messages to the seven churches have underscored for us what community is all about and why it's critical that we not be a bunch of Lone Ranger Christians. So I'm not going to take any more of Erin's time and let her go. (laughs) Hello. So I'm Erin Tui, and I'm on the community team here. And kind of just to talk about what Bobby said, so we believe that community is just important to avoid isolation and just that it's biblical. And so what does that look like? It looks like, you know, doing life and being with friends or just people you serve with. You don't all have to be alike. And so here is a great place where you can actually find people to organically start community groups. And so a community group looks like anywhere from 3 to 12 people. And you guys just meet weekly and talk through accountability and you encourage each other, care about each other. And just really being such a big church, it's a great way for us to shepherd each other because we can't all be under one roof with one shepherd, right? And so we're called to hold each other accountable. On the day we meet Jesus, he's going to ask us, like, hey, how did you love those people and did you love them well? And so we clearly believe in it and think that it's beneficial. And so some ways that you can jump in, like I said, if you bond with some people here and y'all aren't in community, then you can just send us an email. Our contact information is on these little grab cards that Leo will have afterwards. And so just shoot us an email and say, hey, like I've met these people. I'd love to be in community. How do we do that? And we will come alongside you guys and just set you up with a director and kind of walk you through those initial steps. If you're more comfortable going through our um, group link process, which is what these cards are also about. We have two coming up in September. So there's a married couples one and there's a singles one. And so those take place at different times and there's separate grab cards in the back that you guys can grab if you're interested. And again, if you have any questions, you can kind of just contact us on the back and, and we'd be happy to answer them. But I hope you guys are enjoying Sticky Pages and we'd love to see you on the community team. Hey, it's important. You know, what's our middle name? Community. Watermark Community Church. Okay? And so it is important that uh, um, you not live life in isolation, that if you're part of this body, that you have a chance to um, um, get together with others, um, talk about what's important, encourage each other, and not live in isolation. So um, with that, uh, I know the traffic's been a little tough out there because uh, uh, I left the house. Uh, it's about a 10-minute drive here, and it took me about 25 minutes. So uh, I was only a little nervous walking in at uh, um, 6.20. Um, but, so uh, I'm sure we'll have some others coming, but uh, let's pray and we'll get rolling.
Father, thank you for the time to just catch our breath in the middle of uh, uh, a busy week to think about eternal things. And so, Father, we just lift up this study. And, uh, uh, Father, may uh, you bring clarity. Uh, may um, questions that people have be uh, addressed. And uh, may we uh, be encouraged to deepen our relationship with Christ through the teaching of his word. So thanks for each of the folks here who have uh, uh, stuck it out for five weeks of sticky pages. Uh, Lord, may the blessing for them, uh, as you promise in uh, Revelation 1-3, be an eternal one. So thanks for this time. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's jump in because we've got a lot to do. And uh, remember, um, we're going to try to take the last few minutes of the class to uh, have a little Q&A. But as we go, particularly in the review section, if you have questions, raise your hand. We'll try to uh, deal with them then. So here we are in the last week. We've got the millennium and eternity to go. Um, and uh, that will be fun. So for these five weeks, we've talked about a key verse that gives us an outline for the book. What verse is that? 119, okay? Okay. And 119 says, John, you're supposed to write down the things that you see. And he has a vision of whom in chapter 1? Vision of Christ. Right. And remember we talked about uh, um, in Revelation 1, I encourage you to start looking for the things that it discloses about Christ. And I counted 31 things that I saw in the first chapter. Okay? And, you know, as we uh, end up in Revelation 22, uh, I did the same sort of exercise in Revelation 22. And I counted at least 15 things that, um, um, or actually 21 and 22, 15 things about Christ uh, in those chapters, okay? And I'm sure there are more. Leah, um, Vic, um, wave Leah. Um, Leah Vic is the one responsible for all things Sticky Pages as well as uh, the journey and um, our uh, men's ministry as well. And uh, she found 20 things in uh, uh, chapter 22 alone. So there is a ton about Christ in every chapter of the book of Revelation, okay? And so... Um, Use that notebook that we talked about to um, build on uh, your understanding of the person of Christ. Who is he? And that way, when you see him one day, you will know him. Okay? And that knowing him comes about through a lot of different ways. Um, And, you know, one of them is what community is all about. Uh, It comes through studying his word, spending time in prayer, and also um, listening to the counsel of his people, okay? And that's what community is about, listening to the counsel of his people and together sharing um, targeted prayer opportunities to pray for each other and uh, to be in God's word together, okay? So, and then we talked about the things which are, the letters to the seven churches, and we'll review those in just a second. And finally, the uh, last... um, What's that, 19 chapters, 4 through 22, um, are the things that will take place after this, the future things, okay? 
And then we uh, um, talked about the letters to the seven churches, and here are the churches. You know, they kind of make a nice spear point running from Ephesus up to the uh, point at Pergamum and down to Laodicea on the uh, uh, far side, okay? And those seven churches are ones that John knew. And remember we talked about how the depiction of Christ at the beginning of each one of those letters, we compared and contrasted them on the basis of five things. What they des- uh, describe about Christ, a uh, commendation, a rebuke, an exhortation, and um, a promise to the one who overcomes. And the things that they describe about Christ are important for dealing with what's going on in that particular church. And so remember we talked about erring Ephesus that had what? Lost, had left its first love. And, you know, what better picture than the picture of Christ who holds the seven stars in his right hand and uh, walks among the lampstands? Um, remember the churches uh, we learned in Revelation 1.20 were the lampstands because we're supposed to be a light to the world. And so what better picture of a church that's lost its first love than the picture of Christ that walks among, cares about, and holds the stars, the, the messenger, the pastor of um, those churches in his right hand. What a great picture of support. And then we talked about suffering Smyrna. And remember that church was encouraged to be faithful even unto death. And the picture of Christ there was a picture of the one who had uh, died and come to life again. And so, you know, what better encouragement than the one who has conquered death to give the church that's undergoing persecution the courage to be faithful even unto death. And then we talked about permissive Pergamum. And remember, they were tolerating uh, in their midst. They were a compromising church. Um, and there, uh, Christ is pictured holding the uh, sharp two-edged sword, the sword of truth in the midst of uh, um, compromise. And then we talked about tolerating Thyatira that was tolerating evil in its midst. And remember, Christ is pictured there as having eyes like a flame of fire, a picture of judgment, searing judgment. Okay, And then uh, uh, spiritless Sardis, Christ was described as the one who has the seven spirits of God. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And you can look at uh, Isaiah 11.2 to see the sevenfold ministry of the Spirit. And, you know, even though they thought they were alive, they really were dead. And what better way to come back to life than to have a big dose of the Spirit that gives life? And then we talked about uh, um, faithful Philadelphia, the church that was uh, told to hold on to what they have. And remember, the picture of Christ there was one of who opens and no one can shut what he opens. It's a picture of uh, one with unlimited power. Um, he's omni- uh, omnipotent. And so what better to hold on to than w- the one who has all the power in the universe? And then finally, we closed with lukewarm Laodicea. And remember, it was a banking center. Uh, They made this famous black wool. And they had a great medical school that produced an ISAV in which the, um, um, that was used in the uh, uh, ancient world, something that was uh, uh, special. And 
they thought that they were rich and uh, um, famous and, uh, you know, uh, had no need of anything. But uh, Christ says that they were poor, naked, and blind. And yet, in the midst of that, Christ offered hope to a useless, deceived church. And so we saw those uh, uh, the um, first and last churches, Ephesus and Laodicea, were the churches that were in the worst shape. And the next two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, were the churches that were in the best shape. And the ones in the middle had some good and some bad. Okay? And then, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, look at uh, Revelation 4 and 5. We talked about uh, Revelation 4 focusing on the Father, the one who sits on the throne. And then Revelation 5 focused on the Lamb. Uh, Remember, they asked the question, uh, and John was weeping because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And yet one was found worthy, the Lamb. Uh, And we described the the Lamb with four S's, that he was slain and he was standing and uh, he was scrutinizing. And um, I'm blanking out on the fourth S, um, but um, but it'll come to me in the middle of something else. Um, But the lamb was found worthy, and he was pictured not as sitting on the throne, but standing because he has work to do. Okay? And so uh, four and five are about uh, uh, view in heaven. And remember, we started with the uh, pattern of... Grace, then judgment. And we have a prologue in that describes what's going on in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And then we jump into the three series of judgments, seven judgments each, that move the story along uh, in the, the um, book of Revelation in the future things. Okay, And those three sets of judgments were the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And remember, between the sixth and seventh seal judgment, we had another grace interlude. And that was in Revelation 7, where you had the sealing of the 144,000 witnesses to be servants of God. And most commentators think that they were commissioned to go out and be uh, evangelists, to be witnesses uh, for what it means to have a relationship with Christ in the midst of uh, uh, terrible tribulation. Okay, and remember that this pattern of grace, then judgment, then more grace, and then judgment again is uh, um, throughout the book. And what happens is that in the midst of these sets of judgments, you have uh, chapters added in that really provide color commentary to tell us more about the people and the events that are going on. Okay, does that make sense? And then between the 6th and 7th trumpet, there's another grace interlude. Um, um, The um, primary part of that interlude are the two witnesses that are sent, the CNN guys. These guys, I guarantee you, will be on CNN every day because they'll always be doing something, and the world is uh, going to hate these guys. And remember, the one way, uh, the one thing in which rejoicing is recounted in um, uh, the tribulation times, the only reference to rejoicing is when these two guys are killed. Okay? You know, the principle we derive from that is that these guys were immortal until their work was done. God protected them until uh, their work was done. And then he allowed them to be killed 
But then the ultimate CNN moment was when he raised them up. And the whole world is watching. And uh, they're going, wow, um, we're in trouble now. Um, But do they repent? No, unfortunately not. And then that's followed by um, some more color commentary in uh, chapters 12 through uh, 14. And remember in, um, let's see, in, um, I've gotten behind here on my slides here. Here are the judgments. We talked about them being sequential, chronological, and intensifying, and how the sealed judgments um, pour out the trumpet judgments, which in turn pour out the bowl judgments. Okay? Um, And then here's what I wanted to get to in 12 and 13. We have the seven important people for the end times drama identified in 12 and 13. Okay? And then 14 I've described as uh, uh, an indication of, um, you know, uh, uh, really an overview of what's happened or what is happening in the uh, end times drama. If you go through and you've got this on your uh, handout from that week, you can really track through what's happening in um, the end times uh, through what's happening in chapter 14 by itself. Then in uh, uh, chapters 15 and 16, we have the final judgments poured out, uh, the bold judgments. Remember how the sealed judgments impacted how much of the world? No, not a third. A fourth, yeah. A quarter of the world's population were impacted uh, particularly by the sixth um, sealed judgment. And then the trumpet judgments were uh, impact how much of the world? A third. And then the bold judgments do everybody. Okay? And so you see how they are intensifying uh, in nature. Okay? And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, that just makes sense that, okay, so these judgments were sent. And in a sense, they're also the opportunity for grace to respond to the message of these 144,000 witnesses and others to trust in Christ in the midst of this terrible tribulation, okay? And so it's an opportunity to believe, and yet what happens? They don't, and they continue to shake their fist at God. Well, so what does he do? Well, he turns up the heat a little bit more to see if, hey, this time finally they will repent and trust in my son. And, you know, um, it just doesn't happen. Remember we talked about in chapter 9 that we derive three realities from what was happening there, that God was sovereign, that there is an unseen spiritual uh, warfare around us, uh, and that unseen spiritual warfare becomes seen in chapter 9. And then finally, with the uh, fifth trumpet, and then finally, that um, just the hardness of men's hearts, that in the midst of terrible judgment, um, these folks will not repent. They will not turn away, but instead they shake their fist at God and they blaspheme and curse Him and continue to do just what they were doing. Okay, so 12, um, we have five important characters. 13, we have two evil characters described. And then in uh, 14, we see this outline of the end times. All right, then last week we talked about what was going on on earth. 
And we described in Revelation 17 and 18 how God was dealing with um, both religious Babylon and then also political and commercial Babylon. 17 deals with religious Babylon. And ultimately, um, who destroys religious Babylon? The Antichrist, yeah. Okay? And so the Antichrist destroys religious Babylon. Why? Yeah, he wants to be worshipped, and he doesn't want this apostate church getting in the way of the entire world worshipping him. And then God deals with uh, um, political and commercial Babylon in Revelation 18. And remember what, uh, how that was described? What was one of the characteristics that was repeated at least four times? About how fast it would happen? That it would happen in a single day, in a single hour? That, you know, this great commercial empire is going to be brought low. And you know, gang, uh, in 9-11, we got a little taste of how that could happen. Okay? So that's Revelation uh, 17 and 18. And then in 19, we had uh, um, the second coming. And uh, remember how in the sixth bowl, um, the way was paved for Armageddon, uh, drying up of the Euphrates so the king of the east could come and cross, and um, Armageddon is a Hebrew word that means hill of Megiddo, and I showed you a video taken from Tel Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, um, that will be, you know, kind of in the center of what's happening, and here we're looking uh, from the northern end of uh, the valley of Megiddo, or the Jezreel Valley, okay? And so this is where the armies of the world will gather, it's probably... Um, more than just this valley because, uh, you know, you think armies of the world, that's going to be a lot of folks. Um, and so it's probably the surrounding area around that. But there's a 200-mile area that surrounds this valley that the armies of the world would have perfect places to uh, gather to do battle. Okay, and remember in uh, uh, chapter 19, uh, we identified uh, um, several things about um, Christ uh, as he gets ready to come back and as he returns. His aim, that he's in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His appearance, talks about his eyes and head and robe and name. His armies, which I think will uh, include the believers sitting in this room will be part of the armies of heaven. They're arrayed in fine linen, just like uh, the bride uh, of Christ was arrayed in um, the um, preparation for the wedding feast. We see his authority and his rule and wrath and in his name, and then we also see his achievement in the final part of 19, which is total victory. Okay, and we talked about the uh, eight stages of the Armageddon campaign the assembling of uh, the allies of the Antichrist at the Valley of Jezreel, um, the destruction of Babylon, I think, will happen while the Antichrist is away from his capital. Um, and then um, the fall of Jerusalem, uh, an attack on the uh, uh, southern Jordan where uh, I think the uh, um, 
It's possible that the uh, Jews will have run when they fled the city at the midpoint of the tribulation. Uh, Then um, part of the setting the stage for Christ coming back is the national regeneration of Israel. And remember, these things take place over a long period of time, six months maybe, okay? This isn't one battle. Don't think battle. Think campaign, the Armageddon campaign. So these things will take a while to develop. And then after the uh, national regeneration of Israel, we'll have the second coming. And that battle will extend from, you know, southern uh, Jordan up to and including uh, Jerusalem to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it says. And that simply ties in with the Kadron Valley, which is right at the eastern edge of Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Okay? And then finally, we'll have the victory ascent on the Mount of Olives. And at this time, we then talked about what's happening in heaven. And we talked about the judgment seat of Christ and how we all, as believers in Christ, uh, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will be judged at that judgment seat? Our works, not our sins. Why not our sins? They've been paid for. And so our works will be an issue. And the works are always about what? What is the motivation of our heart? That is always the issue. Am I building Christ's kingdom or am I building Bob's kingdom? Am I doing it for the right reasons or am I doing it to glorify myself? That's tough. That's a reason why you need community. Because, you know, I can pretty easily deceive myself that, oh, well, you know, I'm really doing this for all the right reasons. But I've got a bunch of truth-tellers, starting with my wife sitting back there, who are willing to say, you know, come on, big boy, um, are you sure about that? Okay? And that's what we all need. We need truth-tellers in our lives who are willing to say, you know, that ain't right. Or willing to just say at least, well, have you thought about this? Okay? We all need that. We're not designed to be Lone Ranger Christians. All right, and so the judgment seat um, will um, have our work examined. You know, everything from you guys will be gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay, but some of my stuff is going to be wood, hay, and stubble. And when fire is applied to gold and silver and precious stones, it purifies. And when fire is uh, applied to wood, hay, and stubble, it burns up. But you know, that's okay. Because I don't want to have things in my life that keep me from enjoying the fullness of my relationship with Christ. And so the, the, the big point is, okay, so dummy, don't wait until you're standing before him to think about that. Think about it right now where you have the opportunity to make a difference to change, you know, your history, to change, to transform your life in such a way that uh, um, you get up there and, you know, maybe there will be a, a crown or two for you. We each have that opportunity as long as we're drawing breath. And, you know, we, like the two witnesses, are immortal until 
God's done with it. You've heard Wagner say that several times, a bunch. That until God is done with us here on earth, if we truly belong to him, that he's going to protect us until we finished our assignment here on earth. And then, you know, gang, um, when we finished, when there's nothing else for us to do here, why hang around any longer? Okay? Because we're going to see tonight that heaven's going to be pretty special. Okay? All right, we also talked about the wedding feast of the Lamb and how it focuses on the Lamb. The bride is the church. Um, you can read about that in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And we talked about the balance between the sovereignty of God, um, you know, how it describes that it was given to her, and also the bride had a role that she made herself ready. And remember the bride's clothing was what? The righteous deeds of the saints. Wow. And so those crowns that we may get at the judgment seat of Christ and that we may have the privilege of casting at the uh, foot of his throne uh, also give us, um, besides the crowns, you know, the righteous deeds that we've done in our lives will be will provide our garment. And I don't know how all that works out, you know, uh, in you know, uh, terms of dress and uh, clothing design. But somehow that's going to work out in such a way that um, our deeds are going to be something that uh, we wear. And then remember the uh, um, blessing there. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. And so um, that underscores that, you know, the bride will be there, the church, but there'll be others who will be there, friends of the bridegroom they're described as. Okay? All right. Um, wow, that was um, a fast review in 30 minutes. Um, how about a question or two? Seeing none, I will press on. Okay? But be thinking about the questions because um, we've still got one hour. And I'm going to take about, hopefully, about 30 minutes to talk about um, chapters 20 through 22. And then uh, I'm going to leave a lot of time to answer questions. So y'all be thinking about questions. Uh, but otherwise, we're having uh, um, Coke and root beer floats and that sort of thing. And so uh, we will end on time. Okay? All right, so... Here's a, a slide that you've seen before. Um, Daniel's 70 weeks is outlined in Daniel 9. And that is the portion of Scripture that gives us the idea that the tribulation period is going to last for seven years. Okay? Uh, in fact, uh, Daniel uses the term 70 sevens. Okay? And so... 490 years, uh, um, scholars have worked this out. Um, uh, Dr. Harold Honer, who's head of the New Testament Department at DTS, uh, has a little book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, where he work, walks through the calculation of Daniel's 70, 70 weeks. Okay, And uh, I've taken that from here, and he starts with Artaxerxes' decree, which is mentioned in Nehemiah 2, 5 through 8. Um, a decree was issued in 444 B.C. 
um, when you think years, think 360-day years because that's the way the Jewish calendar ran. It was 12 months, 30 days each. And so all the math works out that there were 69 weeks between the issuance of the decree to rebuild the city to the uh, uh, triumphal entry. It says until the time when the uh, anointed one uh, is cut off. I think that's a reference to the crucifixion. And so um, Dr. Uh, Honer's calculation runs through the uh, date of the triumphal entry that uh, he's calculated. And then after that, after the 69 weeks, we have the great parenthesis of history, which is the church age, which is what we're currently in the middle of, okay? The great parenthesis of history. And so uh, it gives us a, uh, a break between the 69 weeks that have uh, been completed and the 70th week that is to come. And we think that that is the seven-year tribulation period where God will deal with... Um, the nation of Israel, okay? It doesn't start with the rapture. It instead starts with a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel, okay? And so uh, the rapture may be, you know, the day before, and it may be uh, a few weeks or, you know, who knows exactly how long before the tribulation period the rapture will occur, okay? Um, I promise you that... Uh, uh, I would tell you uh, about when the rapture was going to occur um, the first week, and uh, don't let me forget to do that uh, tonight before we quit, okay? And so um, the 70-year tribulation period, uh, or I'm sorry, the seven-year tribulation period is Daniel's 70th week. You can read about that in Daniel 9:27, uh, Right in the middle of it, 1,260 days in, uh, we'll have the... Uh, um, um, creation of the abomination of desolation in the holy place uh, is described. And so this will be a part of the beast demanding to be worshipped. Okay? And we'll uh, talk about that uh, on our next slide even uh, a little bit further. But it's mentioned both in Daniel, but it's also mentioned by Christ in the Olivet Discourse. Okay? In Matthew uh, 24, 15. Um, so Christ talks about that, and he talks about it as mentioned by the prophet Daniel. Okay? We've just talked about all the uh, judgments that go on during the tribulation period. It's ended by the second coming, and uh, that begins the millennium, which we'll dig into in just a few minutes. And so here is the uh, same outline we've used for the seven-year tribulation period. And remember, there are things that, you know, we're not exactly sure whether the sealed judgments occur in the first half or maybe they're uh, at the beginning of the second half of the judgment uh, of the tribulation period. I think that they are likely going to be occurring during the first half of the tribulation. Okay? And you see the things that happen right at the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, the end of sacrifices, uh, the death of the two witnesses. Again, that's speculation by scholars and uh, I agree with it because it makes sense to me that for the beast to demand worship, he's got to have those guys out of the way. And so I think their uh, ministry is likely to occur in the first half of the tribulation period. Um, you know, if that doesn't happen until the second half, that's okay with me. And so don't get hung up on that, that you have to have everything 
um, just lined out so that you know exactly when everything happens. Okay, you're going to be busy in heaven and you don't have to worry about what's going on on earth because the one who is sovereign and knows how everything comes out will be taking care of that. Okay, and so where do we put our stake in the ground? Second coming. coming, Okay, there is going to be a second coming. That's where we put our stake in the ground and everything else we hold loosely. Okay, the message to the seven churches we pay attention to. But in terms of the timing of all of this, we hold it loosely, okay? And so the trumpet and bowl judgments at the, um, the last half, martyrdom for re- refusing to worship the beast will go on uh, likely in an intensified sort of way in the last half. You, we've talked about the judgment seat and the wedding feast going on. The Armageddon campaign begins and the second coming occurs. All right. Questions on that? All right, so here we are at uh, the fun part of the night, and I'm starting with a really easy one, okay? We've got a lot of books to give away tonight. What does millennium mean? The first hand I saw was uh, uh, John Zimmerman back there. Okay, that is correct. So I got a book for you, buddy. And so, um, where does the word millennium come from? What language? Latin. Latin, correct. It, mille is the word for a thousand, and annum is the um, word for years. Okay? So it's one of those things that says its name. Um, John, I got a book for you. Okay, so that one was pretty easy, no big deal. Uh, the next one is a little tougher. So why does God turn Satan loose at the end of the millennium? All right, Richard, have you won a book? No. All right, you've, you've actually, you've had to uh, um, reveal, haven't you? Okay, so let's, this is not an easy one, buddy, so take it on. Okay, that's exactly right, but why? Why does God do that? No whispering. No whispering. <laughs> well, that that would be one way to read it. Okay? And so, um, you know, biblical scholar sitting to your left. Stand up, please. And identify yourself. And um, tell me where in Scripture it says that. <laughs> okay. Well, for our Catholic friends, they may include Second Maccabees, but we don't. And so you may stand back up and reveal something about yourself. <laughs> hey buddy, I'm coming back I'm coming back to you, so use this time to be thinking.
The second coming of Mary Lou Retton right there. There she is. That is Robbie Russell. All right. Well done. Okay, buddy. So why does God turn Satan loose? Okay, that's what he does, but why? Well, it's part of him executing his judgment against those who have been... Oh, uh, you've fallen back on the old, because uh, God's sovereign, and it's his plan. That's a pretty good thing to fall back Yeah, I guess that's right. You kind of got me there. But the bottom line is, we don't know why, okay? We don't know why. Isn't that right? Show me a verse that tells me why. No, I, I'm going to cut you some slack, because I think you're right. Um... And I think actually Robbie's right that um, that's part of God's plan to, um, uh, but she's on staff and I can pick on her. Um, and um, but it's part of God's plan to uh, um, you know move the uh, forces of history along. You think I can do this? All right, good job. All right, so um, Scripture doesn't tell us, but what's the answer to every question where Scripture doesn't tell us? It's what they've talked about, the sovereignty of God. It's to his honor and glory. And somehow God says, okay, turning Satan loose for one final shot. Um, you know, maybe it's the way to kind of clear out the millennium to see who the true believers are. Okay? So um, Scripture doesn't tell us why he did it, but obviously it's always to his honor and glory. All right, so that was a pretty easy one. Let's get harder. So what's the difference between the judgment of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25 and uh, the great white throne judgment in Matthew in Revelation um, uh, 20? Tom, I saw your hand first. Okay, that answers the uh, question of when that one occurs. When does the great white throne judgment occur? Okay, and that's a judgment of the dead, great and small. And are those believers or unbelievers? Okay, right. Okay, and so you've answered uh, a tough question very well. Um, Pass that back to them. Actually, we'll send two back. Um, So, in the judgment of the sheep and goats, that's something that Christ talks about in Matthew 25. And that will occur um, after the second coming uh, to to prepare the way for the millennium. Okay? And then the great white throne judgment we'll talk more about, that actually occurs... um, at the um, end of the millennium, after uh, God has dealt with Satan and the ones Satan has deceived. Okay? All right, so here we are for this week, and we've got uh, uh, 45 minutes left. We can do it. Um, The things we're going to focus on tonight are the millennium, Satan's final defeat and the great white throne judgment, and then the new heaven and earth and new Jerusalem. Okay, so let's talk about the millennium. And here are the questions I want to answer. When does it begin? Um, And we've just answered the when does the sheep and goat judgment occur. I think it occurs after the second coming and uh, before the start of the millennium. 
then who enters the millennium and populates it? Who rules during the millennium? What will people do during the millennium? Will there be births and deaths in the millennium? And then, if so, what happens to those who died during the millennium? Okay? So, let's dig into those. Anybody want to take any of these on? I still have three books. Anybody feeling brave tonight? Okay. Anybody? I saw I saw a quick hand. You can pick your own question. All right? So, say again. Christ rules in the millennium? That's partially right. You get the first half of the book. Now let's see if you can get the second half. Who else rules? Yeah, the saints rule. It said that the uh, uh, I think the church will rule. I think that, you know, those who have trusted in Christ will reign uh, it talks about in uh, Revelation 20, okay? So that is worthy of a book, all right? Who else wants to answer one? Pass that back. Yes, sir. Which one? Which one? Okay. Okay. Which ones? The good guys or the bad guys? Right. Okay, that's not hard. And uh, um, how will they populate it? Will there be marriage still? So. Um, I'm assuming that there will be. Okay? And uh, um, the people who survived the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom will still have their earthly bodies. Okay? And so I'm not... Scripture doesn't really tell us how God works all this out. But I think that they will be the ones who will populate. You know, they'll get married and they'll um, have babies and uh, things like that will go on. That tells us one of the things that people will do during the millennium. And uh, um, so, I can't believe y'all didn't laugh at that. Um, the uh, um, But that's how the millennium will be populated. And if you think about it, for a thousand years, I don't know how many people start the millennium, but you take that nucleus of folks, believers in Christ, who uh, start the millennium, and they're going to, over the course of thousand, uh, 1,000 years, have a ton of offspring. Okay, Jody? Also, the um, I think that in the sheep and goats judgment that the Lord's going to deal with all the unbelievers, okay? And so I think that it, the millennial kingdom will only start with believers. Now, by the end, you're going to have, you know, 10-plus generations down, and so the great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren may not be believers in Christ. And so what does that tell us? Well, uh, one of the things it tells us is that even in perfect environment, with the perfect king ruling, the human heart still will rebel. And so those will be the ones who will be misled by Satan and deceived and follow him into uh, a bad thing. Okay? Now, there's some interesting theories out there uh, in terms of, um, um, you know, what happens uh, in the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, one commentator I read, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, that I've talked about 
uh, before, thinks that um, people will live for a uh, hundred years, that um, you'll have a hundred years to trust in Christ, and that if you don't, if you've not trusted in Christ by that point in time, um, you'll die. Okay, and that if you die without Christ, then you're going to be subject to dealing with Him at the Great White Throne Judgment. Interesting theory. Um, hadn't heard that before. Um, wouldn't put a stake in the ground on that. Uh, but you know, it. You know, who knows? He could be right. But I think it's clear that only unbelievers will start. But that through the years, even though they live in perfect environment with the perfect King they're still in the hardness of the human heart going to be deceived ultimately by Satan and rebel against God. Yes, ma'am. Does that mean that sin will still exist in the perfect environment? Um, Well, that's a good question that I don't have a good theological answer for, okay? Um, Somehow, um, you know, there there may well be, uh, you know, if people have old sin natures, uh, during the millennial kingdom, then there will be sin of some sort. And it may be the sort of thing that that's part of the reason that there will be uh, lots of folks reigning and ruling uh, is to deal with um, sinful hearts. Okay? Don't put a stake in the ground on that. Yes, ma'am. Well, that is certainly true, okay? So, um, um, didn't I already send a book back to you? Okay, okay. Um, so, you're almost there. But, okay. Um, so, when will the millennium begin? Well, if you look at Daniel... Part, what? Year one. Year one. Well, it'll be, it'll be New Year one. Okay. The millennium will begin 75 days after the um, um, second coming, I believe. And if you look at uh, uh, Daniel uh, 12, verses 11 and 12, you'll see that it talks about a period of 1,335 days, and then great things are going to happen. I think that's a reference that uh, after Christ comes back, there's going to be a period of 75 days where um, he'll kind of use that to do... Uh, the sheep and goats judgment and the things that have to occur before uh, the millennial kingdom starts. So I think it's actually going to start about 75 days after the second coming, and that's close enough. Pass this one back. All right, what do we have left? Um, Yes, sir. All right, the rest of these are bookless, but you can still answer them, okay? So we've talked about when the millennium begins, the sheep and goats judgment, who enters the millennium, who rules in the millennium. What will people do during the millennium? Tom? They'll work, absolutely. And work will be a joy. Work will be what work was created to be, to bring honor and glory to God. What else? I think that um, we're going to see the teaching of the Word. Okay? I think uh, Christ will teach the Word, and I think He will have other shepherds to teach the Word as well. Okay? 
So you're not going to have to put up with this teaching. You're going to have some really good teaching in the millennial kingdom, okay? The best teachers are going to be teaching during that time frame. And, man, that is going to be glorious. Think about, you remember the uh, uh, guys on the road to Emmaus and how um, Christ unfolded the scriptures for them and how their hearts were burning? I mean, you know, that's what we're going to have the privilege of having a chance to do is to hear teaching um, straight from the lips of the, the one who is the word. That's going to be pretty fun. All right? Um, what else will happen? Well, I think you're going to see the fulfillment of uh, a number of covenants that God has made with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing is what you need to think about for the Abrahamic covenant. The Davidic covenant, you're going to see Christ reigning on the throne of David and fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, you're going to uh, um, see uh, the Palestinian covenant fulfilled, dealing with the land. And so God is going to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel and uh, uh, through Israel to the world. Okay, That's one of the reasons for the millennial kingdom, I think. Okay, um, here's some verses, um, some sites for um, the idea that there will be great teaching during the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 54:13 says, "All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children." Uh, Micah 4:2 says, "And many nations shall come and say, "Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may ta- teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's Micah 4.2. And then Jeremiah 3.15 says, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's pretty cool. So Isaiah 54.13, Micah 4.2, and Jeremiah 3.15. All right. Um, births and deaths we've talked about. Um, and so if... If deaths occur, what happens uh, to people who die in the millennium? Well, here we go. You've got this uh, uh, on your um, handout, and it shows what happens to each of the different categories of folks. Okay, This is from Dr. Constable's notes. I've talked to you about it at soniclight.com. Uh, it's a great reference that you ought to be using as you study the Word. Okay, We don't do this first. We don't go see what Dr. Constable says first. We read the text, and we determine context and gather the clues, and we compare and contrast with other scriptures before we ever think about uh, going to see what Dr. Constable says. Because if you just go see what Dr. Constable says, you know he's going to be really smart in scriptures, and you're not. Okay? Because you're going to, every time you then have a question, you're not going to be able to answer it. You're going to have to say, oh, well, wait, I need to go see what Dr. Constable says. Okay? But um, he's got this great chart that uh, is in his notes on Revelation. And it's found uh, right after Revelation, uh, his notes on Revelation 20, verse 6, page 185 of his notes. You can, um, they're available for free on the Internet. And so this shows, this happens. And so let's just look at what happens to a Christian. Um, at death, the material part of uh, the Christian goes in the grave, and the immaterial part, the soul, goes immediately to paradise 
in Christ's presence. You know, the, the thief on the cross said, uh, Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And uh, um, then those are uh, reunited, the uh, soul and body, in a resurrection body at the rapture, comes to judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, and then heads to uh, heaven with the new, new heaven and new earth. Okay, so I hope this will help you figure out, hey, where do these different categories uh, fit in? And what happens to people at the different time? Okay? So take a look at that. I'm going to leave that uh, for you to look at uh, on your own. Okay, um, so from this chart, what do you think happens? Can't read it. All right. Well, look on you. Look on your own. Can you read it on your handout? Uh, all right. Well, all right. So go to Doctor Constable's notes. Now you'll have to go to Doctor Constable's notes. Okay. So what do you think happens? Okay. If they're a believer in Christ, what happens? Yeah, they're they're resurrected at um, um, some point, or they don't die. Maybe it's only the unbelievers died during the millennial kingdom. Scripture doesn't say. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, well, that is a great question. Um, and uh, we'll talk about that. Remember, Satan is locked up during the millennial kingdom. And it says that there are at least four different ways that he is restricted. Okay? Uh, he's in the abyss and uh, they... Um, put him in chains, and uh, they uh, uh, seal the abyss. And so, obviously, you know, he's a powerful guy, and they ensure, God ensures that he is dealt with. And so he is not there to deceive. But think again. Um, if people are still born with an old sin nature, you know, our heart runs to do mischief. You know, um, Romans 3 says that... Uh, um, there's nothing good in us that, um, you know, we're desperately wicked. And so I assume that whatever mischief goes on during the uh, uh, millennial kingdom will come about because of that until the end when Satan is turned loose. Okay? And so unbelievers, what happens to an unbeliever in the, uh, if there are unbelievers in the millennial kingdom, what happens to them? Well, I think that um, they may well die. And if they do die, then they'll be resurrected as a part of the uh, resurrection of the dead, the second resurrection at the great white throne judgment. Remember in uh, uh, Revelation 20, there's two different resurrections described. The first resurrection happens in various stages, and it includes all who have believed in Christ. And then the second resurrection is for unbelievers only, and those are the ones who will be at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm sorry, that was totally wrong. That will be at the Great White Throne Judgment. Okay? All right, so let's jump into uh, um, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And we've just been talking about Satan's final defeat. And so we see that he's bound for a thousand years, and then he's set free to deceive the nations. And how about this? The number of those deceived is like the uh, sand of the sea. Innumerable. So there will be a lot who will be deceived uh, by Satan. 
His forces surround Jerusalem, but, you know, it isn't really much of a battle because fire comes from heaven and consumes them. And then Satan is thrown in the lake of fire to join his two buddies, the Antichrist and the false prophet, who have resided in the lake of fire for these uh, thousand years and who are still, you know, uh, they haven't been annihilated. They're still in the lake of fire uh, at, when Satan is thrown in there, okay? And where it says they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yikes. Okay, not yet. This is just Satan. He's the first one to go in uh, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Okay? And so, again, the principle I derive from that is despite perfect environment and despite a perfect king um, and despite universal knowledge of who Christ is, we still have problems with the human heart. And there will still be some who will be deceived And unfortunately, they're described as like the sand of the sea. Okay? So there's Satan's final defeat. And then as we move to the uh, next few verses, uh, Revelation 20, verses uh, uh, 11 through 15, we have the great white throne judgment. You know, the judge is not uh, identified. But we think the judge obviously is... Jesus. And why do we think that? Anybody give me some scripture that says that? Did I say that up there? Oh. All right. So, you know, I've tripped myself up again. Okay. So, John 5 22 is exactly right. Way to go, Brittany. Okay. She read the slide. That's good. But John 5 22 says what? It says that all judgment has been given to, to Jesus, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And so um, I think he's going to do the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to do the great, uh, the um, sheep and goats. And he's finally going to do the great white throne judgment. Okay? And so the ones who are judged are described as the dead, great and small. Um, And these are the rest of the dead who did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. And so these are the folks who have died without knowing Christ. The just judicial standard is what is written in the books according to what they had done. Sin's not an issue at the great white throne judgment. Their works are an issue. What have they done? Okay, and how does that stack up against the righteousness of Christ? Okay. You know, he's clear, um, and if you think about it, Uh, All these judgments are on the basis of what they've done. And so first we had the opportunity to believe in Christ, to ensure that we will not see the wrath of God. And then we have a chance to make a difference in what we do. I don't think that they will be judged for their sins. Because I think their sins were paid for at the cross. Now there, um, there are... Great scholars who would disagree with that. But there are a lot of great scholars who would agree with it and say that uh, if you believe in the concept of unlimited atonement, that Christ died for the sins of the world, and I can give you a bunch of verses on that, then um, I don't think sins will be an issue, but it will be based on, and the language is uh, what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
No, Jody, I think uh, um, that ultimately keeps them from being in the book of life by not having believed in Christ. But it says that they'll be judged for what they had done. I think that's their works. Okay? We don't put a stake in the ground on that, but, you know, I'm just going on what the Scripture says. Um, we are going to be judged at the Bema on the basis of what we've done. Okay? And um, salvation's not an issue. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, uh, where it talks about the judgment seat of Christ, okay? It says that uh, um, if your works are burned up, that you'll suffer loss, but you will be saved, but as through fire. And he makes it clear, Paul makes it clear for everybody he's writing to, the Corinthian church, that uh, uh, salvation is not an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Now, the reason they're standing at the great white throne judgment is because they've not trusted in Christ. But they're still going to be judged, Scripture says, according to what they had done. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Um, okay, so I think the question is, uh, uh, what will happen to the ones who are judged at this judgment? Well, yeah, I mean, I know it's according to what they've done, but... Okay, but what happens to them? Um, 2015, I think it is, says that they are thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. So you don't think there will be a degree of, uh, certain degrees of punishment um, well, there are a lot of scholars who think that there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Okay. okay? And so I don't know. Yeah. Um, that may be part of the reason, and scholars who believe that take that that way, that um, because of what they've done uh, differentiates their punishment. But, hey, they're all going to be in the lake of fire, so there's nothing good about that. Okay? And so... Um, the, the fact of the matter is that we don't want to be at that judgment, and the way not to be at that judgment is to trust in Christ today if you haven't done so. You know, in, in the course of uh, the 500-plus people who have come to this class, you know, there's got to be some folks who are sitting out there who have not trusted in Christ. And, you know, um, if there's anyone here tonight, I would say, you know, Make today the day of your salvation by believing the claims of Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so, um, you know, that is a way to ensure that you will not see the wrath of God. And there is nothing I'd rather do than talk with you uh, if you're in that boat tonight after we get done. Okay? Because, you know, gang, we're not promised tomorrow. You know, I had a uh, um, good friend um, die this week uh, of West Nile virus in Dallas, Texas. And I'm just going, what? We're not promised tomorrow. And so if you've not done business with the claims of Christ, make that your goal tonight to sit and say, okay, Father, you know, if you are who you say you are, and if this word is true, then help me become one of your children by trusting in your son.
Okay? We're not promised tomorrow. All right. So there's Satan's final defeat. We've done the great white throne judgment. Um, We didn't talk about the judgment, but there it is. The judgment is the second death, that is the lake of fire. Okay? To be tormented day and night forever is the way it describes Satan's torment. Okay? It's not good. And, you know, is it fair? Well, these people have chosen to separate themselves from God. Okay? And so they are going to have that opportunity for the rest of eternity. That is not a good decision. Um, The descriptions of the lake of fire um, are scary. Um, that's not what I want my eternal destiny to be. And that's not what I want any of y'all's eternal destiny to be. And the way to avoid that is by simply believing in Christ. You know, Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and they're singing hymns and uh, whatnot, and the other prisoners are listening, and there's a great earthquake. This is in Acts 16, and the jail cells uh, fly open, and the jailer uh, is awakened, and uh, he runs to grab his sword to kill himself. And why does he do that? Well, he knows that he's going to receive the punishment that, you know, um, for letting all these guys get loose. And so rather than do that, uh, he says, it's better to kill myself. And Paul cries out and says, you know, don't do it. We're all still here. And the guy falls on his knees before Paul, the Philippian jailer, and he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And what does uh, Paul say? He says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, it's a simple act, but it has eternal consequences. It's a free gift, but ultimately it's going to cost you your life because that's what Christ wants. He wants your life so that he can make it be the life that he designed it to be Uh, to bring him glory, and also to be the person that God designed you to be. All right. I've gotten to preaching here, and uh, we need to finish. All right, so it's time for the new heaven. And after this judgment, the uh, old heavens and earth uh, have passed away. New things have come, um, Revelation 21 says, and the old has passed away. And if you look at Revelation 21, what are the things that we see? Let me run down them right quick. God dwells with His people. Now, how cool is that going to be? He is going to dwell in our midst, and we're going to dwell with Him in our midst. The old has passed away. No more sorrow, death, mourning, crying, or pain. You know, new things have come. It's the third use of the uh, phrase, it is done. In John 19, Jesus uses that phrase to say um, sin has been paid for. So we're done with sin there. And in um, uh, Revelation 16 with the bold judgments, uh, again the phrase appears, it is done, and we're done with judgment. We're done with the uh, judgments on the earth. And then finally, here we are, um, and the phrase is used again, and we're done with the old things, of human history. And so what comes to replace them? Well, uh, complete satisfaction, full inheritance, full fellowship, no place for sinners, 
And then uh, in the last half of the chapter, uh, chapter 21, we see a new Jerusalem uh, coming down. And in the new Jerusalem, we see uh, its glory as God Himself. And then we see the contrasting heritages of those who trust in the Lamb and those who don't. And you know, John uses language to describe the city as like a bride, as a bride. Well, that doesn't mean that that's the church. What it means is that this city, it's a symbolic uh, use. It means that this city is adorned in you know, all its finery like uh, a bride. It's, you know, fresh and beautiful. And it's probably, this chapter, uh, chapter 21, is probably the most problematic chapter in the book of Revelation in terms of symbolic interpretation. But let me give you some principles for understanding Revelation 21. You know, John actually saw what he recorded, and to some extent it was interpreted for him. And he described what he saw in terms that meant something to him. Okay? He saw things that no one else has seen, and he tried to describe them in terms that uh, both he and we could understand. And so uh, one of the conclusions I, I draw from this is that John saw a city that will be inhabited by believers of all ages. And that cl- conclusion number two is that God himself um, dwells in that city. And think about the contrast between this new Jerusalem and what we saw in Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. And that is quite a contrast. And one of the things that struck me about the city was just, you know, how many different times it was described as uh, transparent. Um, it's a city that's designed to transmit the glory of God. It's got 12 gates, and uh, on the 12 gates are the names of the 12 tribes. And it's got walls with 12 foundations, and on the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. It's measurement, 12,000 stadia. You guys uh, measured any stadia lately? Um, Well, neither did I. Uh, But if you think about it, if you go from Dallas to Los Angeles, and Los Angeles to Fargo, North Dakota, and Fargo, North Dakota to Washington, D.C., and Washington, D.C. back to Dallas, you've got something that approximates the size of this new city. Okay? Um, It's going to be big. Uh, Some commentators think that it's going to be cube-shaped. Others think it might be pyramid-shaped with the throne of God at the top of it. Um, but one thing is certain, and that is that it, it will be beautiful, really beyond words. Um, and Dr. Wolvert had some great quotes about that. He said, the general picture here is one of unmistakable beauty designed to reflect the glory of God in a spectrum of brilliant color. The city is undoubtedly far more beautiful to the eye than anything humans have ever been able to create. And it reflects not only the infinite wisdom and power of God, but also his grace as extended to the objects of his salvation. How about that? And so in um, Revelation 21, here are five things that it doesn't have. It doesn't have a temple. It doesn't have a sun or moon. It doesn't shut its gates. Um, It doesn't have night. And it doesn't have sin or sinners. I think we're talking about the uh, eternal New Jerusalem here. 
And five things it does have is the river of the water of life, the tree of life, the throne of God and of the Lamb. It has the Lamb Himself, and it has worship going on. Here's a, uh, uh, a great quote. Uh, the Lord God Himself and the Lamb are the temple of the new city. This is why they don't need a temple, because God Himself in Christ will be present. Um, it says that no longer is a structure necessary for believers are in the immediate presence of the Lord with no need for an earthly mediator or shadows of eternal things. Believers now have access to the most sacred, intimate fellowship with the Lord um, in fulfillment of the many promises given to the saints. You know, uh, gang, we will know then as we are known, and it will be glorious. And the book closes in chapter 22 with uh, uh, both warnings and uh, worship. And what we see is uh, uh, several times that uh, um, it talks about what must soon take place for the time is near. And so there you go. That's the answer to when Jesus is coming back soon. Okay? And so the longer he tarries, though, gives us opportunities to be those lampstands shining his light in a dark world. And so, Lord, give us more time to do that so that more may come to believe in uh, you. Blessed, uh, here's one of the um, closing uh, benedictions, one of the seven blessings. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, uh, of the prophecy of this book. That's in 22.7. We're told to worship God in 22.9. And John is told not to seal up the books of the prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book, and that simply means that he's told to tell others about what God is uh, going to do in human history. And then uh, I love uh, twenty-two, eighteen, and nineteen. It says, "I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book: if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book." So, Lord. Forgive me if I've added anything to your words tonight. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And Father, it is my humble prayer that I have not done that. But then he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And John closes uh, uh, verse 20 with, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And so in bringing closure, you see all the things that started here in Genesis. Heaven and earth created, sun and moon created, night established, seas created. And over here in Revelation, you have a chart that shows how God has brought closure to everything um, that he started in Genesis. Satan appears to deceive man in Genesis, and Satan disappears forever in the book of Revelation. Um, the curse is announced in Genesis 3, and no more curses um, um, stated in Revelation 22:3. Death enters history, no more death. Um, man driven from the tree of life, man given the right to the tree of life. And you can see how the things that God uh, started in the book of Genesis have now been brought to conclusion and to final fulfillment 
in the book of Revelation. And so we have in the garden man being driven from God's presence and we close uh, the book of Revelation with man dwelling with God in such a way that they can see his face. That's pretty special. And so, gang, here we are at the last so what. And remember the first week I asked the so what of, do you really believe this? Well, now you've heard a bunch more. And so some of it you kind of just have to go, hmm, wow. Um, that's more than I can really comprehend. But, you know, I believe the one who has given this vision to John. And so if he has said it, then I think it's trustworthy. Because if, um, if, it's, if he's not true, then we're just kidding ourselves. And are you holding fast to what you've learned? Or are you just satisfying your curiosity? Um, and, you know, are you going to decide to live in accordance with the reality that has been unveiled? Or are you going to live in accordance with your own fleshly desires? How about this one? Are you ready to see the Lord? We're not promised tomorrow. And so we may be face-to-face with him a lot sooner than we think. And, um, you know, the admonition of Kyle Kegler that I shared with you, get your butts ready. That's what we're called to do. Are you faithfully feeding the household the Lord has entrusted to you? That's what we're to do until he comes back or until we go to see him or until we die. We are to faithfully feed the household that the Lord has entrusted to each one of us. And then finally, you know, this is what the letters to the churches was all about, about them being a lampstand in the midst of a a watching world. Are we willing to tell others about the hope that's within you and about the train wreck that's coming if you don't trust in Christ? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to uh, have folks go, man, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard? You know? And, you know, frankly, if I had not believed in Christ, I'd probably agree with them. That, man, this sounds like some crazy stuff. But I'm willing to stake my life on the fact that uh, Jesus is telling us the truth. Are you? That's what he calls us to do. It's a free gift, uh, salvation. But it costs us our lives because that's what he wants. He wants us to be all in in following him. And that's what the book of Revelation calls us to be, all in. All right, gang. Um, It's time. I've left uh, at least six minutes for questions and answers, (laughs) despite promising you 30. So forgive me for that. Um, But what sort of questions do we have? Surely we've got some. Yes, ma'am. Um, well, it depends on how you define that. Uh, I would think of millennial saints are uh, people who believe in Christ during the millennium. Choose to trust in Christ during the millennial kingdom. That's what I would call millennial saints. 
Okay. Other questions? Jody? The, um, that is uh, um, certainly something that uh, uh, more than just your friend uh, have as a view. Um, I think that uh, um, when Christ in uh, the first part of Revelation 20 talks about those who will reign with him, I think it includes the church. Because I think we come back with him, and I think that's what um, our job will be during the millennial kingdom. So I, I would disagree with that. Would I, you know... Um, put a stake in the ground on my belief? Absolutely not. Um, but I think that you know the Lord is going to have a role for the church during the millennial kingdom. That's a great question, though, and certainly worthy of uh, more study. Brittany? Where do you think the new heaven and earth will be? Um, well, the short answer is I don't know. Um, my second answer would be Wherever it is, it's going to be great. Um, and um, I think it's going to be, you know, kind of where we are now. I don't think that this earth is going to be remade. I think it is going to be a new creation. Um, and so, um, you know, he talks about the heavens and earth pass away. And so I think it's going to be totally new creation because God is going to remove the total stain of sin that infects not only us, but it also um, has had its impact on uh, the earth. And so I think he's going to recreate it. Um, you know, I'm okay wherever he wants to do with it, uh, but I think it'll be somewhere, you know, kind of where we are now. Um, you know, there's a question about, does the new Jerusalem come down from heaven and is it suspended over the millennial kingdom? You know, I don't know. You can drive yourself crazy. Uh, trying to figure things like that out. Um, wherever it is, it'll be okay. Trust me. Okay? John? Soon, buddy. Soon. That's uh, right out of Scripture. Um, at least three times in uh, Revelation 22, he says, I'm coming soon. Okay? Yes, sir. Um, well, there's going to be no night um, I, during the millennium. Um, it says that, you know, in describing, um, let me back up here. Um, there may be night in the millennium. I'm thinking about uh, the New Jerusalem, there'll be no night. Um, and so I, I don't know that there will be any need to sleep for those who are in their resurrected bodies. Okay, I think, you know, the picture we had of Christ in his resurrected body was that uh, he could eat, um, he was recognizable, uh, but he could go through walls, okay? And so, man, that's going to make traveling back and forth between the new uh, heaven, new Jerusalem, and, you know, getting around the world a lot easier. Um, but um, I think in the millennial kingdom, it will be, um, you know, kind of like what we have here. So there may well be night. And the people who are here on earth without resurrected bodies, they will need to sleep, I think. But that's just a guess. And will 
I think that uh, uh, Christ will have, uh, um, you know, uh, will use the church to be part of the folks who are reigning during the millennial kingdom. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Well, I think it is, will be all believers, um, but it will not. It will be more than just church age believers. And what I, I use John as a, uh, an example, John the Baptist, he's described as a friend of the bridegroom. Okay, and so I think the Old Testament saints, I think all who have trusted in Christ, uh, will come to the to the uh, wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, you know, some guys think that that's a uh, um, um, a symbolic sort of thing. Um, I think it, um, obviously, we're not married to Christ. Uh, we're his bride, but that's a, that's a description of the relationship that we have. And so is the wedding feast symbolic? Maybe. Uh, but it also could be a literal feast that happens in that 75-day period between the uh, um, uh, second coming and the start of the millennial kingdom. Or it could be the first week of the millennial kingdom. You know, the typical Jewish wedding feast was seven days, and so maybe that's the way the millennial kingdom starts, is with the wedding feast of the Lamb. I frankly hope that it is a literal thing. You know, because it will be a banquet to end all banquets. Okay, Martha? I think it is, and I think the perfect example of that is the the people who are undergoing these horrible judgments, the uh, three sets of judgments we've talked about, who will continue to shake their fist at God even though they know that he is responsible for these judgments. Uh, instead of saying, okay, I give up, I want to be on your team. You know, my team's getting its butts kicked, Okay. And so I think it is so blinding to the point that their hearts have become so hardened that they just are incapable of, you know, turning and repenting. And, you know, you would think that uh, a thousand years in the abyss would give Satan the opportunity to go, hmm, maybe I made a big mistake too. Um, But, you know, no. When he comes out, the first thing he's going to do is to work to deceive the nations. Because he is a deceiver, and he is the father of lies, and he is a murderer, and that's who he is. Somehow. Freddie? Um, well, that is a great question. And, you know, the way I answer that question... Uh, is typically to say that, look, um, there are about three principles that you can uh, trust. One is that God is fair and that he knows all the facts and that he will do the right thing. And so um, in this day and age, are there still people groups who have not heard about Christ? Um, Well, that's becoming less and less an opportunity or a, a, a problem. And I think that one of the things we see during the millennial kingdom 
is that there will be a worldwide evangelism that will go on to give these folks a last shot at trusting in Christ. And so um, I think that certainly during the tribulation, there won't be any who have not heard. Now, down through the ages, I mean, are there some people in uh, different places that have not heard? I don't know, but I think that we can trust God to do the fair thing. We can uh, be sure that uh, um, if they have not believed, then they have gone against what Romans 1 describes as the witness of creation. Because the witness of creation says that, hey, there is a creator. And, you know, uh, the stories of missionaries on the mission field are le- uh, uh, legion about you going and, you know, coming to a uh, people group that have never had the gospel presented to them. And they go, oh, after they hear God described, they go, oh, that's his name. We've known about him, but we've not known what to call him. And so, you know... Um, creation in and of itself is enough to say you should know that there is a creator. But, you know, we can trust God as the omniscient judge to do the right thing. Does that answer your question? That's as good as I got, (laughs) even if it doesn't. All right. Yes, ma'am? Man, that is above my pay grade. Uh, she asked, when will the angels be judged? Um, well, I think that the um, uh, the ones who have followed Satan uh, will get their uh, due at some point. I don't know the answer to that question. Is probably as good as I can do right now. I don't know. I, something in the back of my mind says that, you know, uh, there's a verse that says we'll judge angels, but um, that's beyond my pay grade. I don't think it's in the book of Revelation, so it's um, <laughs> off the table. Great question, though. If you find the answer, let me know. I'd like to know. Yes, ma'am. No, it's for all unbelievers because there will be a general resurrection. The second resurrection will bring everybody back for that judgment. And so, you know, it it spent some time talking about even those who are in the sea will be somehow the Lord's going to bring them all back together and uh, uh, have them stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment. So it will be for for all unbelievers for all of time is my understanding. How did the Jews view uh, Daniel's 70 weeks? I don't know. Um, You know, that's a great question that would be interesting to talk with uh, a knowledgeable uh, Jewish rabbi because, you know, what do they do with Daniel's 70 weeks? And uh, do they say, hey, has this been fulfilled? Uh, Because, you know, there's nothing in history that matches up exactly with it. Um, And particularly... Um, you know, you could say, well, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., maybe that's as close as they get. Um, but um, I don't have an answer for that, really. But uh, that would be an interesting thing to uh, visit with 
if you have a Jewish friend, ask them, you know, what do y'all do with uh, Daniel 9? One more question. Why am I pre-trib? Um, okay, so everybody remembers what we talked about, about um, uh, believing that uh, uh, the rapture will occur before the tribulation. Okay, y'all remember that? Um, Watermark's view is, and this is in his doctrinal statement, is that the rapture will occur to remove believers from the earth before the wrath of God is poured out during the tribulation. And I can give you some verses that uh, say that, you know, we'll not see his wrath. And so that's what I would uh, submit. One last one. Um, no, I'm all, I'm all done. Uh, but they're easy to get through uh, Amazon. Okay? It's uh, Charles Ryrie's uh, commentary. Well, let me close, and uh, uh, thanks for sticking around. There's some great Coke floats. Let me pray for us as we quit. Lord, I counted a uh, singular uh, honor and blessing to have stood before uh, these good folks uh, for these five weeks to talk about uh, something that um, is uh, eternal and uh, something that has consequences for today. And so, Father, may uh, uh, we have hope that your Son is coming back, and may it motivate us to uh, be willing to tell others. And so, um, be with each one here, Father, and may we use the days that we have left to bring you honor and glory by uh, being uh, willing to give an account for the hope that's within us. So thanks for this time, and thanks for each of these folks. In Christ's name, amen.